Colossians chapter 2, this morning we're going to look at the last half of that chapter, verses 16 through 23. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, let me direct you to Bibles scattered all throughout the seating area. You should see one. If you don't, flag somebody down. Chances are they're sitting on one and they'd be happy to pass it to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible too, let me say, take that one with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you and we'd love a chance to talk to you about anything that you may read there. Colossians chapter 2, Paul's letter to a new church in Colossae. I don't know that there's ever been a time in history or a place in the world where there has been a culture that's more vocally opposed to passing judgment than ours is. I don't know, this may be apocryphal. I've never been able to find this written anywhere, but I've heard that that in some sort of study of most cited verses that yes John 3:16 is right up there as as a favorite in our culture God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son but that right there with it neck and neck is Matthew 7:1 judge not lest ye be judged we as a culture loathe any evidence of classism or racism or all the other isms that classify or evaluate people not to mention trying to impose our values or anyone else's values on anyone else. It's in our blood. And in this setting, it's really easy to beat up on obvious examples of this sort of, uh, of, this sort of judgmentalism. I think one of, the, one of the writers that has helped me connect with, with what it is to be judgmental or to, to be moralistic is Flannery O'Connor, who wrote probably 40 years ago, 50 years ago in, in Georgia. And she lived in the culture that gave birth to me as a southern boy. And she lived among one of the most, I think it's safe to say that, that 1950s American South is about as judgmental a culture as they come, at least in, in terms of its public persona. And she captured this beautifully in a whole host of characters. But one of my favorites is this character in a short story called Revelation. The character's name is Mrs. Turbin. And she's this... Uh, This woman who's taken her husband into a doctor's visit. And most of the story takes place in the waiting room of this doctor's office where she just sizes everyone up. It's played out in her head where her her words say one thing and they're sugary sweet. But in her mind, she's checking out people's shoes and she's looking at what they're wearing. And she's looking at the fact that they don't get up and offer her a seat when she comes into the room. And she's looking at the way that they talk, the specific accents that they have or the types of words that they use. She's sizing them all up, the whole story is about her seeing the world through her lens and, and arranging things in a hierarchy. And one of my favorite moments in the story is where she admits to herself as a narrator that sometimes when she has trouble going to sleep at night, she likes to classify all the types of people that there are in the world. And she likes to think about what she would have chosen if she couldn't have been who she was, of course. She, what she would have chosen if Jesus had offered her uh, her, her, her options, her pick out of a couple different options. Of course, she also spends time thanking Jesus that he had made her who she was and given her such a nice disposition and not made her part of these these other classes of people that she's sitting in this waiting room with. It's a a beautiful story, and it it captures, I think, what we think of when we think of judgmentalism. I think it's too easy, though, to describe moralism, judgmentalism, whatever, as somebody else's problem. These kind of examples, the ones that set in our minds what it is we don't want to be, they seem ridiculous to us. But maybe that this this public distaste 
has clouded us to the private truth that we're all prone to the basic sin of moralism. Moralism will define as the tendency that we have to measure ourselves before God and other people by our moral performance. What we do is what decides who we are. And it's what separates us on a scale, on a hierarchy from, from others and in the eyes of God. One of the classic tendencies in moralism is to mark off boundaries that define wrong and right in ways that always leave the person making those boundaries on the right side of the boundaries and never on the wrong side of the boundaries. So one of the tendencies in moralism is not to be aware that you're guilty of it. I think we would we'd be doing ourselves a great disservice if we allowed our distaste for people passing judgment on others to convince us that we fall in the category of those who never do that. We're all guilty of it, and that's Paul's target in the second half of Colossians chapter 2. And what he has to say about moralism has everything to do with how we continue to fight that same tendency today. Now, here's where we've been so far in Colossians. In the paragraph we come to today, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul has finally arrived at a description of what it is he's been writing against all along. He said many different times, made hints many different times, that there was some sort of teaching at work among the people in Colossae that was dangerous. So far, he stayed positive. He's warned them to stay away from that teaching by showing them the true thing, the real thing that they should cling to. And so all of Colossians 1 and everything we've seen so far in Colossians 2 has been about celebrating Jesus. It's been about showing him to be such a sufficient savior that there's no need to add anything to him. He's enough. That's been the point so far. And last week, in one of the main hints about this error that that had crept into their church, he labeled what was being taught, this false teaching, as empty deceit. Empty deceit. It's now that we finally get to understand his take on why it's empty. It's at the end of this celebration of the gospel that he turns to the problem of the false teachers. That's why verse 16 in chapter 2 starts with the word therefore. He's just celebrated Christ. He's labeled this false teaching empty deceit. He's explained what it is that Jesus offers that no one else can. And now he says, therefore, in light of Jesus and everything that Jesus offers, this is true. Verses 16 through 23. And these verses are all about moralism. Paul's message is this, because of the nature of the gospel, in light of the gospel, this teaching must be wrong. What I want to do this morning is is take a close look at how Paul debunks this false teaching in verses 16 to 23. Basically, it boils down to his claim that this teaching has no substance. We want to understand why. Why is it empty? And then... I want to take a pass back over the same material, trying to dip into it for how we might be able to analyze ourselves, both to challenge us in our own tendencies towards this sin and to encourage us not to be judged by others, to be satisfied in Jesus and what he's offered. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you mind now, if you found that passage, would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If, with Christ, you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, to get into the meat of what Paul is arguing in this paragraph, I think we can summarize it as this simple claim. In light of the gospel, in light of the truth of chapters 1 and the first half of chapter 2, about all that Jesus is and all that he's done, in light of the gospel, moralism has no substance. He's already claimed that this is empty, this teaching. And these two paragraphs, which, which mirror each other, have a lot of the same themes with each other, Paul explains why this approach to pleasing God and to Christian living is empty. Let me give you three different things that he claims about this teaching. At best, first of all, at best, moralism is built on shadows. Moralism is built on shadows. This is Paul's word. He claims that the regulations these teachers were using to judge and condemn others, they were caught up, all of them, in things that at best were just shadows of something more substantive. It's where he starts in verse 16. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you, he says, in questions of food and drink, or festivals or new moons or Sabbath. It's a classic list that comes up in other places in Paul's letters, in places like Romans 14 or in the book of Galatians. It's a classic list because it was one of the, the sets of things that, that, uh, that Jewish people who were converting to Christianity were tempted to teach as a layer upon whatever else Paul or the other apostles were teaching, as another layer of what faithful living would look like. It's stuff they were used to doing, part of their Jewish background, and it made sense that as Jewish converts, they would keep on doing those things and even make them a litmus test for faithful Christian living. Paul's shutting it down. Paul's shutting it down. And his claim is that their shadows where the substance belongs to Christ. Now, notice that he doesn't say that these things in themselves are bad. It seems like he's even conceding that they served a good purpose. They were there as pointers to something that's real. A shadow, ultimately, is a sign that there's something substantive there because something substantive is what's blocking the light and creating that shadow. The shadow is a pointer to something real, but the shadow itself is not lasting. It's not real. You can't grab onto it and touch it. Paul claims their shadows and the substance belongs to Jesus. These teachers, though, have been blinded by the shadows so they can't even see that the substance has arrived and that there's no need to combine the old with the new. This notion of shadows is also interesting and useful in another way, though. So if here, in verses 16 and 17, Paul's saying, these things that they're telling you you have to do 
They're just shadows. They point to the real thing. Later, he makes a slightly different point that could also be summarized under this notion of shadows. He says that these things they're calling for in you, asceticism, not handling all, not handling, not tasting, not touching, all of them, what they have, what they have in common is that they're caught up in material things that pass away. They're shadows in the sense that they, they're here one minute and they're gone the next. They actually perish when you use them. So how could something that you swallow and that's then gone have the power that you're giving to it to make you okay or not okay in the eyes of, of God or others? They're shadows. Your whole system is built on things that either were there to point to something else or that themselves won't last. That's Paul's claim. At best, moralism is built on shadows. Another thing he says is that moralism is arbitrary. Another reason that this perspective on how to please God, all this list of regulations or rules that the Colossians were being having, having thrown at them, another reason that it's empty, just deceit, is that moralism is arbitrary. Here's what I mean. This gets a little closer at the heart of moralism. The standards that are used to define who's okay and who isn't, to set the scale of obedience and satisfaction. The standards, whatever they might be, are standards that we set up ourselves. And we're the ones who put them in place. That's what Paul claims in verse 18 and then again in verses 20 through 22. He, where in verse 16 and 17, he may be admitting that these things were once commanded in the Old Testament, in the law. In verses 18 and 19, he describes practices that weren't commanded asceticism or seeking after spirits to help you connect with God or or emphasizing visions that you might have these things are are not commanded anywhere so to claim that they're necessary for faithful Christian living that they're important for connecting you with God and making you okay in his sight well that's an arbitrary claim that's something you've set up a standard you knew you could meet and so you put it into place and use it to judge yourself and others he's saying don't let them disqualify you as if they were some sort of umpire as if they had the right to say who's in and who's out ultimately these are just Paul says in verse 20 or or verse 22 actually these are just human precepts and teachings they look good but verse 23 says they're self-made this is self-made religion I'm going to trying to think of examples of how we can connect with this arbitrariness it's it's almost like what it seems like paul's case here is it's almost as if you wanted to lose 10 pounds and you decided you were going to do that by reading more and maybe getting a little extra sleep well those things are good in and of themselves right there's no connection between reading more and shedding 10 pounds it's an arbitrary connection that you've set up for yourself this one may hit a little closer to what paul's after let's say you you want to do something nice for your spouse. And you want to create a whole day full of special things that are going to make that spouse feel loved. Let's say it was in my case. And what I did was I planned out a day for Lindsay and me to watch football, to maybe actually attend a live sporting event, followed by an evening of foreign films. Well, these things are things that I enjoy, but she doesn't. There's an arbitrary connection, right, between pleasing my wife and the means that I've used to please her. There's It's a self-made attempt. It has nothing to do with her and what she wants. That's what Paul's claiming here. 
These people are saying these, these regulations are necessary for you to follow if you want to please God. But God never called for these things. How do we know God wants this? It's self-made religion. And because it's self-made, it's empty and has no substance. Finally, Paul's, Paul's final and I think most important claim about moralism and why it's empty and connected to the other things we've said is that moralism is powerless. Moralism is powerless. Probably because it's arbitrary, because it's standards that we set up and therefore know we can, we can meet because we're not basing it on things that God has called for. Therefore, it has no power to accomplish the things that we set out for it to accomplish. It can't deliver. The basic flaws of this false teacher's system involve that, the fact that, that though the system is plausible on the surface, though it seems humble and self-denying and serious because it's about severity to the body and asceticism and all this public display of religion, though it seems good on the surface, it's all based on human inventions. It's based on over an overvaluation of the physical and therefore Paul's summary condemnation of this teaching is that it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, verse 23. It just can't get the job done. These things are all designed to suppress sin. The problem is they have no power to do it. The rules can't deliver what's promised. And the reason is that they're not connected to Jesus. In seven, verse 17, he's already claimed that these things are just shadows, but Jesus is the substance. And in verse 19, he explains why all of these arbitrary rules won't get the job done. He says that they are not connected, they're not holding fast to the head, a reference to Jesus. And it's from this head that the whole body, nourished and knit together, grows with a growth that is from God. These rules and regulations, they have a radical misunderstanding of what our problem really is. The problem is not out there. It's not outside of us. It's not embedded in these physical things that distract us. The problem is not out there. It's far more powerful than any arbitrary human decision to deny yourself of something. The solution that they've proposed is not connected to any kind of realistic view of who we are, and it's not endorsed by God. All it is is negative. All it does is restrain. All it does is try to put chains or cage over the, the, the indulgence of the flesh, but it has no power to root it out. It has no power to root it out. It's not a positive force that replaces the power of the flesh with a power for good and holiness and love. Paul's claim all along has been that the only effective engine for growth is growth that comes through the gospel comes through attachment to Jesus and it's a growth that comes from God. The problem with the false teacher system is that they are proposing a growth that comes through just self-will or growth only comes from God. So Paul's case, verses 16 to 23 is simple. Moralism has no substance. It's based on arbitrary rules that humans set up that tend to restrain sin but not actually replace or remove sin and for that reason it's powerful or powerless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's Paul's case. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time digging into how we might connect with his case against moralism. And I want to start 
with this claim. In light of the gospel, you don't get to judge others. In light of the gospel, you don't get to judge others. The reason I want to start there is that, as I mentioned before, we're part of a culture that despises judgmentalism. We hate that. And we're part of a Christian culture that has shed many of the preoccupations that our our previous generations have had in favor of Christian freedom. I think especially in, in the culture, at least in this city, in the circles that I run in, it seems like we have shed some of the things that earlier generations insisted we're wrong, and we have understood those to be layers added on top of the gospel, and that Christian freedom allows us the ability to, to, to have freedom to make decisions about what is and isn't okay for us, where the gospel's not involved. And therefore, because we're part of this generation, we tend to resonate, I think, with Paul's condemnation of moralism here. It, t- it tends to make sense to us that he's getting on to people who add rules on top of the gospel. We want to cheer him on. Chances are not a few of you use passages like this one to justify having a beer in college, right? Not going to ask for a show of hands, but chances are this has been one of those texts that's been useful for that purpose. Now, we identify ourselves with Paul's Colossian readers here. We accept his warning against legalism. And there's a reason to make that connection. I'm going to make a big deal out of that later. There's a reason to identify with the Colossians and to hear Paul telling us, don't let anybody judge you based on standards that they've set up. But before we rush to Christian freedom, before we rush to affirm Paul's case against these false teachers, I think we've got to look long and hard about how we might be guilty of what, in essence, is the same sort of moralism. Ultimately, we share the same tendency that these false teachers had, a tendency to identify ourselves, to identify our our sense of self-worth by comparison to other people may not be keeping a roster of some sort of ascetic self-denial or how many festivals that we've observed or what angels we've worshipped lately. We, we, we don't have those kinds of rules, so it could be easy not to see ourselves here. But we've got our issues too. The problem in identifying where we're guilty of this is that the essence of moralism is what makes it so hard to notice. Moralism often starts with things that are good in and of themselves. They're things that that maybe you should do, and and they're great. They have good effects on you and on other people. often starts good with things that, even if they're not good in themselves, they're good in the eyes of the culture that's, that's watching you. Moralism is about being exemplary, right? It's about being known for your goodness, being celebrated by other people. And if it's about being exemplary, If it's about performing better than the rest, it makes sense that it would thrive on things that the culture values, on things that because you're part of that culture, you might not be able to see as a bad thing or as a a moralist tendency. That was certainly true of these Colossians. Paul says, Paul admits in verse 23 that these things that they're calling for, they have the appearance of wisdom. When people look at what they're calling for, it makes sense. They connect with it because in their culture, This is what it looks like for somebody to be serious about religion. It looks like someone denying their body of things. It looks like someone seeking out the spirit world. It looks like someone having visions or observing holy days. These are things that the culture valued. They celebrated as signs of seriousness. So for those in Colossae, they were especially in danger of conceding to it because they couldn't see it for what it was. That's what makes it subtle. 
Because it's always easier to beat up on the legalisms of previous eras that seem foolish to us now. But it's hard to recognize where we fall guilty. Where 20 years from now, we may look back and laugh at ourselves for thinking this thing was so important. Remember, one of the things that's easy to beat up on is condemnation of, of all alcohol. But remember that in the 20s, that was such a popular thing to do that it became the law of the land. Prohibition happened in America because, not, because condemnation of all alcohol use was not some fringe fundamentalist crazy people. It was not, that, that's not the only place where it happened. It was, it was happening across the wide spectrum of respectable America. Legalisms make sense, and they're hard to recognize because most people look at them and say, yeah, that's the way a good person should live. So a problem with moralism is its subtlety and the varying degrees that it's in all of us. And we've got to figure out where we could be tempted today. Now, the answer to that question could be different for all of us. And as I've already said ad nauseum, it's hard to recognize because it's things that are affirmed as good by the wider culture. But chances are, one of the most important clues, the answer, whatever it might be for each of you, is that it's, you, can, you can locate it wherever it is you find yourself comparing yourself to other people. Wherever you find yourself passing judgment, which is essentially what these Colossians were doing, that's where you're guilty of moralism. Now, here's some ideas about where you, you might see it based on things that, are, that can be good in themselves and that are popular in our culture. Maybe for you, it's some sort, some combination of environmentally friendly measures. Not that these things are wrong, right? Taking care of the earth is a great thing to do. It's just that they're not ultimate. You find yourself feeling better about yourself when you're good about recycling or taking public transportation or buying local. You find yourself judging other people who don't share your priorities, maybe aren't quite as good about those things as you are. Again, the issue is not whether or not these things are good. The issue is whether those things have any bearing whatsoever on Christianity, on faithful Christian living, on whether or not you stand right in the eyes of God. That's the question, and they don't. The question to ask of these things is, where's Jesus necessary if these regulations matter? If they're not connected to Christ, then they're empty. That's Paul's claim. If they're not connected to the head, then they're empty when it comes to comparing yourself, to, to, to evaluating yourself under the eyes of God. Another example. Same thing could be said of political affiliation, right? A vote is a really nice, bright, dividing line. And votes matter. They're significant. People celebrate them. And for that reason, they are a, a hothouse for this kind of legalism. I've seen this in action on both sides of the line. I went to college at a really, really conservative college. And it was probably the norm there. It was probably the norm to doubt whether or not someone could actually be a faithful Christian and vote for a Democrat because of the issue of abortion. The issue of abortion was so central to the, the identity of, of these people and their, their desires for American culture, and rightly so. It's an important issue to, to be concerned about. But it had become so so tightly connected to this one specific action, this one specific means for getting rid of abortion, that they, 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 it was not uncommon to hear someone say that they didn't understand how a Christian 
could cast a vote for someone of the other party. Then I come to Vanderbilt Divinity School, totally different environment. There, it was just as common to doubt whether or not someone could be a faithful follower of Christ if they cast a vote for a Republican based on issues of welfare policy or labor policy or immigration. Now, don't mishear me. Christians should be good citizens, and your votes matter. And honestly, it's just impossible that your values won't affect how you vote. Don't hear me saying that that's not a natural and even good way to approach the political process. Do hear me saying that whether you choose to vote Republican or Democrat is not in itself a way to identify you as either pleasing or not pleasing to God. That vote is not connected to Christ, and therefore it's empty as it relates to your standing before God. Take parenting styles. Now, my single friends out there, pardon me while I pick on those of us who have kids. Is there anything about us that lies closer to how we evaluate ourselves than our performance as parents? Is there anything about which we're more prone to compare ourselves to others for good or for ill than how we perform as parents? And it starts at the beginning, right, with birthing styles. You're going to go natural or not. It starts with infant care. Did you read Baby Whisperer? Oh, you read Baby Wise, huh? That tells me all I need to know. Or <laughs> breast milk, formula, and then it's off to the races. You've got schooling choices to make. You're going to go public. You're going to go private. You're going to go homeschool. Then you've got, you've got discipline. What's the best way to discipline your children? Now, the reason these things are, are ripe, fertile ground for moralism is that they matter so much. And that as Christians, we have responsibilities to raise our children to know and love God. These are, these are sacred responsibilities. And because we take our responsibilities seriously, we're going to do the research. We're going to decide what we think is best. We have to do that. We're responsible to do that. But it's a reality that even in a church our size, there are going to be folks all over the spectrum on this. And what we've got to do is ask ourselves before we start comparing, we've got to ask ourselves, where's Christ in it? Not in the value of parenting, not in the responsibility to raise children to know and love God. That part's clear. That is a Christian duty. But in the means that we use to get to that end, there's going to be room for difference, and it's not connected to the gospel, and therefore it's empty as a standard for relating yourself to God and knowing how he feels about you. It's also, therefore, empty as a standard for judging other people. Let me say one final example. And this last example is a perfect example of how subtle moralism can be and how it attaches itself even to the most important of Christian duties. We can fall prey to moralism, to judging other people, and therefore showing that we judge ourselves in God's eyes. Even in our efforts to serve others, even in our efforts to relieve the suffering, to do social ministry, no one is going to say that we don't have a responsibility to take care of other people, right? In fact, our whole membership covenant at this church is built on spe specifying the ways that we're going to involve ourselves in each other's lives. But, you know, even this can be a standard for weighing yourself in the eyes of God and before other people. A lot of us probably encountered Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde growing up. Um... um I owe it to Tim Keller, though, to recognize how much 
the turning point of that story relates to the gospel and to our ability to see ourselves as moralists at heart, whose even their best efforts are corrupted by pride. That story, of course, is the story of a doctor, Dr. Jekyll, who decides he's going to try to suppress and isolate evil in himself. He recognizes that he's a mixed bag. His motives are all over the place. His actions are inconsistent with each other. And he figures that he'd be better off if he could come up with this potion that, could, that would allow him to control when the evil in him expressed itself when it came out. So he develops this potion. He takes it so that only at night does Mr. Hyde come out. And he only he gets it all out of his system when it can't really affect anyone else. And during the day, he's wonderful. I mean, he spends all of his time doing only good things, thinking only good. And his plan feels like it's working beautifully, like he's maximizing the goodness in him by isolating it. Then one day, he's sitting on a bench in the park, and he begins to reflect on his experiment and how well it's working, on how much better he was now than he had been before on how much more service, how much more good he had performed, not just than he had before, but that than any others do now. And as he's reflecting on his own moral superiority, without the use of the potion this time, he transforms into Mr. Hyde. This is, this is the turning point of the story. I smiled, Dr. Jekyll says, comparing myself with other men comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. At the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and I was once more Edward Hyde. What Jekyll learns, the moral of the story, of course, is that sin is not something you can isolate. Because sin even gets into the best things that you do. And even the best service that you perform for other people can become a means by which you attempt to justify yourself in the eyes of God and others. The problem is not the things themselves. Things themselves can be great. The problem is in the judgment. Judgment of yourself, judgment of yourself, especially related to others. We don't have the right to assess other people as naturally as that comes to us, because the flip side of negatively assessing other people is positively assessing ourselves. And that positive assessment of ourselves is the enemy of the gospel. Because in the moment when we do it, we have written a need for Jesus out of our way of relating to God. The moment when we present ourselves as successful in one phase of our journey, at that moment, we have written Jesus out of it. I don't know what area you're most prone to moralism in. I guarantee you, you've got one, probably more. The question to ask, whenever you're tempted to feel good about yourself or bad about others, the question to ask is, how, how do you define what makes a good Christian? And what does the gospel have to do with your definition? How do you define what good Christian living is? And, how, and what does the gospel, what does Jesus have to do with your de definition? Where is he necessary? If he isn't necessary, then you've got yourself moralism of the same order that Paul's condemning in Colossians 2. Now, from there, in the last couple minutes, I want to encourage you in case you're coming up on the losing end 
of judgment. In light of the gospel, you don't get to judge other people. But in light of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done, you also don't have to fear being judged. One of my favorite illustrations of what it can feel like to constantly be trying to prove yourself to God and other people is, is in a book by C.J. Mahaney called Living the Cross-Centered Life. He talks about this variety show that he used to watch as a kid. And one of the, one of the acts in the show was this guy who would, sp- who would spin plates on sticks. And he would spin them really fast, and he would spin another one, and spin another one, and spin another one. And he would, he would keep running around, keeping all these plates spinning. And just as one would start to slow down, he'd rush over just in time before it topples and keep it spinning. And, and it was, it, you'd just see how long he could keep it all going. And Mahaney says that that's the way his life feels so often. When he gets caught up into evaluating himself based on his performance, it's like he's got all these plates and he's got to keep them spinning before they come crashing to the floor, bringing with it any kind of value that he might have as a person. So you've got the, you've got the plate of your responsibilities at work, your desire to please your boss or your coworkers. You've got this plate that is your service of other people, maybe your outreach among the poor. You've got this plate that is friendships and the desire to be seen as a good friend or, or parenting and the desire to be a good and successful parent. Whatever it might be, you've got all these plates, many of them perfectly good in and of themselves, but your life could feel weighed down by the pressure to keep those things spinning, and it's exhausting. This is what the gospel frees us from. Let me explain how. The gospel frees us because in it, In light of it, we don't need to fear judgment from others. We don't need to fear judgment from self. Because ultimately, we don't need to fear judgment from God. So you don't don't have to fear being judged by others. Remember the gist of Paul's commands here? Where he starts, really the, the, the centerpiece of the paragraph, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. The gist of Paul's commands is not to allow anyone to pass judgment because Jesus is who you are identified with, and in him you are fully and completely in satisfaction of all things required for your standing before God. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you because you haven't met their standards. The gospel tells you to expect the fact of your own weakness. The ship has sailed on you meeting all the standards you were supposed to meet. That hasn't happened, and it isn't going to. So in the gospel... We are able to accept that fact, to look at ourselves in light of who we are in Christ, and to move on and not worry about someone judging us for our failures. We already know we failed, so that takes the power out of it. I realize that, that, that there are people here, even this morning, I'm sure, who are pained by feeling that they have failed the standards of, of others, and that could be even long and ongoing relationships with, with parents or or in, in your workplace. It could be anyone that you feel compelled to please and feel like you're not, feel like you just can't quite get over that hump. You realize that the gospel liberates you from that fear. It liberates you because it tells you that in Christ, all your deficiency is wiped clean. In Christ, there is a fullness through a union with him that nobody can take away. Their standards are no longer the ones you need to meet. The standards that matter have been met for you. You don't have to fear being judged by others. You also don't have to fear being judged by yourself. Some some of us are less prone, maybe, to worrying about what other people think than we are to beating ourselves up because we failed to meet our own standards. 
There's pain in realizing that you aren't who you thought you would be, not who you'd hoped to be. I was dealing with this even in the past couple of weeks. If you'd asked me how I was doing probably three weeks ago, I would have told you I was really encouraged. Uh, I was feeling great about um, the major components in my life and, and my performance and my job, and, and, and things were great. And then a week later, wasn't feeling so good about my performance in my job in particular. And, and it hit me as I was preparing to preach last week. I'm preparing to read Paul and, and explain Paul's celebration of Jesus as the one who's so perfect that you don't have to fear the judgments of others, as the one who so perfectly met all standards that you don't have to meet anymore. And as I'm preparing to preach that, I'm beating myself up for failing the standards that I had set for myself. It's a time for repentance, a repentance of pride and false hope. Time to remind myself that though my performance wasn't what it needed to be, the standard for measuring my life, the lens through which I view myself and my purpose and value is not my performance, but Jesus' performance for me. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm united with Christ. His resurrection is a pledge that he is going to make me everything that I need to be because I'm united to him. What I needed in discouragement was not someone to pat me on the back and tell me that, no, you really are doing great. That's the last thing I needed. That, that kind of affirmation can be a crutch that hides you or keeps you from having to rest on Jesus instead of on your assessment of yourself. What I needed was for someone to say, Jesus did it all. You're good because he's good. Ultimately, the reason we don't have to fear others judgment from them or judgment from self is that in Christ we don't fear the judgment of God. In Christ there is a solution to our sin, to our weakness and frailty that is so perfect that it needs no supplement from any other source. I've heard this uh, analogy. I, I can't attribute to original source. I've heard it a couple different times from different ministers. I think it captures the, the love of God, the one that frees us from all fear perfectly. If your spouse asks you, do you love me? And you answer, yes. And your spouse then asks you, well, why do you love me? If you answer that question with any number of things good in themselves, you've set your spouse up for failure. If you say, well, I love you because you're beautiful. No one looks like you do. Or I love you because you're really smart. Or I love you because you're such a great mom whatever, fill in the blank. You've just established standards or conditions for your love, conditions that can be met or not met. You've just set the bar. The love of God doesn't work that way. What that spouse wants to hear is, I love you, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. And that is precisely the kind of unconditional love that we have offered to us in the gospel. It's what Paul meant when he describes the Colossians as formerly dead in their trespasses and sins, but met there by the grace of God, that God, while they were still dead, made them alive. There is no condition for God's love. He meets us in rebellion as enemies as those who are dead and have nothing to bring to the table. And that is where he applies his love, apart from conditions. And because his love works that way, you don't fear being judged, not by others, not by yourself. Will you pray with me?
Father, thank you.